I have an analogy that if you remember it, I won't share it, but if you don't, I will. And it, it's the only one that I know that does the job. It's, I've shared, I think this would three times now, how the story of the Wizard of Oz isn't just a kid's story, but it's actually Frank Baum making a political statement. You guys remember that? Yeah. Okay, so quickly, I'll give you. So by the way, the first time I saw the Wizard of Oz, I hated it. You know why? Because the fairy godmother gives Dorothy the silver shoes. No, 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 no. Oh, in the movie, they changed them to ruby because silver didn't show up very well on the screen. So they're actually in the story, they're silver, and that's very important, and you'll see why. I hated that because then she goes through, right, hell, essentially. Toto gets stolen by a monkey, and she gets to the very end. The Wizard of Oz is a fraud. And then what's the wizard, what does the fairy godmother say? Oh, just click your heels together and say, I want to go home. I'm like, what? She went through all that. She had the answer on the whole time. You are not a fairy godmother. You are a wicked stepmother. So I hated it. Anyways. It's a total side note. I shouldn't have wasted time. But so when he wrote that story, there was a giant debate in the United States about moving from the gold standard to the silver standard. So in the story, the yellow brick road leads to the Wizard of Oz, who is a fraud. The whole time she has on her feet silver shoes that are the answer, right? So what Frank is saying is we need to move from the gold standard the silver standard. Every character in the story is a fraction or a faction, a faction of somebody in the United States that has kind of a play in politics. So you've got the scarecrow. He represents the farmers and the scarecrow is brainless. Whoopee. You know what he's saying right there? Uh, number two, the Tin Man represents the factories and he is heartless, cruel, methodic factories. Just don't care about people, punch out your stuff. The Lion, King of the Jungle, he represents politicians and he has no courage. Isn't that awesome? Like, yeah, okay, I agree with that. And then the Wicked Witch of the East and the Wicked Witch of the West represent the liberal sides of the country right? Those are the two liberal sides, uh, blue states on both sides, right? So it's the, the East-West liberal establishment and they're witches, which is telling you something about what he thinks about that. The heroine is Dorothy and she's from where? Kansas. The answer is good old middle America values. Pretty cool, huh? So if you read the book, much more than the movie, you start to see like the, the, Interactions are very, very deep. You're like, oh my goodness, I know what he's saying right there. Okay, well, Frank Baum's not the first guy that's done that. In fact, the Bible has been doing that for thousands of years. It tells stories and they're not just, hey, that's an interesting story, I'd like to put it in the Bible. The stories are to shape the way that you and I as Christ followers, as Christians, you and I actually integrate and see the world. And if you get the real like, oh, this is what this story is saying. What it enables you to do is understand life and design and kingdom and reality. And it's huge, okay? So we have a story today. 
And it's not just some random story that Luke grabbed. What's happening in Acts is this. You're going from Jerusalem and Peter as the centers to in chapter 13, Paul and Antioch as the center. And stitching them together is this Luke chapter 12 story. That seems a bit random until you understand that's what Luke is doing. He's saying, hey, this is what's already happened. We've seen it happening. And when you look out in the future, you're gonna see the same thing happening, this same power struggle. You're gonna see it happening to Paul as he's persecuted over and over and over and over again, okay? But this little story encapsulates the story of the Bible. It's the big story, right? So I'm gonna try to show you that. And hopefully then, when you read the Bible, you'll begin to see, oh, that's what that story is. See, scripture is meant to soak in. Psalm 1 says that the godly man, the godly woman meditates on the Bible day and night. Here's why. It's like when you click on an image in Google, like at first it's fuzzy and then it kind of gets clearer and clearer and clearer and all of a sudden, oh, I get it. That's the Bible. The first time you read it, you're like, oh, that's interesting. Second time, oh, that's even more interesting. Oh, and it gets clearer and clearer and you begin to see, oh, that's it. And the more that you soak in scripture, the more it shapes your worldview and helps you to integrate with the way things really are. Okay, so let's look at Acts 12. It's gonna be a bit academic, but if you get it, it will help you every time you read the Bible. So verse one, Acts 12. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. There's a whole bunch that's setting you up for the story in this first five verses, okay? You got Herod. We know Herod because we met a Herod. There's actually four in the Bible. We met a Herod in Matthew chapter two. And Herod in Matthew chapter two called Herod the Great. I call him Herod the Ain't. Herod the Great, not a good guy. In Matthew chapter two, he's killing babies. Should remind you of another tyrant that killed babies. He's killing babies, so he's, he's a bad dude, okay? He also kills his brother-in-law and his mother-in-law, which some in here are like, well, he's not that bad then. <laughs> I'm sorry, I should not do that. <laughs> it's just too easy. So he's not, he's not even Jewish. He's the king, but he's Idumean. To hide the fact that he's Idumean, he goes into the temple and burns all the birth certificates, right? He's the original birther. History just repeats itself, man. This stuff just never changes. So he's bad dude, kills babies, burns, you know, birth certificates, sets up this dynasty. So this guy in chapter 12 is his grandson, Herod Julius Agrippa. And he is a terrible ruler. He rules by doing this, causing problems that he can swoop in and try to solve. So he causes chaos and weirdness and issues. And then he comes in and says, look at me save the day. Well, you caused the problem. 
So he causes enough problems that people don't realize that he is actually the giant problem. And this is what he does. He takes his power, verse one. He lays hands violently on some who belong to the church. Number two, he murders James, the brother of John, and he puts in prison Peter. And all of this happens at what time? Passover. Okay, so if you have read the Bible and thought about the Bible and studied the Bible, your mind should be going ding, 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 ding. I've heard a similar story before about a bad guy who kills God's people, puts them in captivity, right? Who's violent and who's evil. And then there's this event called Passover where the people are set free, right? It's Pharaoh. So that's the story of Pharaoh. Pharaoh, bad dude, kills the babies. He keeps people captive. Uh, God over and over says, hey, let my people go, let my people go. Nine times, God comes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. He refuses, he refuses, he refuses. Even his magician says, this is the hand of God, let these people go. He will not, so then finally, the angel of the Lord comes, and to put it simply, he punches Pharaoh in the mouth, destroys the army, sets the people free, okay? So your mind should be ringing about that. Okay, I think I've heard a similar story. Look what happens in our story. Verse six. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in his cell. And he struck Peter on the side and woke him saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He was not, he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they came and passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Do you see it? You start putting like these pieces together, like, wait a second. Angel of the Lord sets free, gets him going. Okay, right? So Wednesday, we'll do more work in this chapter. All I wanna do is this. I'm trying to, trying to set the stage to give you some giant themes that are in the Bible, and these themes shape the way that you and I see the world and interact with it. And I just wanna point out three of them, okay? Evil, justice, and hope. Because what we're gonna see is this story, chapter 12, is gonna repeat over and over in the book of Acts. That there's gonna be good stuff, opposition, stuff, rescue, et cetera, et cetera. It's gonna repeat itself over and over and over. And when you get these three big themes, I think it enables you to understand how the world actually works. And when you understand how the world actually works, then you're not taken by surprise. And you're able to rightly live out the mandate we're to live as Christ followers, okay? So number one, evil. Verses one and two, Herod is an evil person. He takes innocent believers, is violent toward them. Probably means he had them lashed, beaten, 39 times, brutal. And then that's not enough. 
He grabs James, kills him, cuts off his head with a sword. And then if that's not enough, he grabs Peter and is planning on doing the same thing to him. He's a bad, evil king, right? He kills the apostle James. Part of the 12 that Jesus him Christ had said, these are my crew. He kills him and here's what is a little bit crazy. Jesus doesn't swoop in and save the day and rescue James. James gets killed. He kills him. The Bible is really honest about evil. God doesn't always swoop in and save the day. And sometimes I think we wanna flatten the Bible and make evil like, well, it doesn't actually exist. No, the Bible's real honest about evil. It really exists and bad things do happen. Bad things like James being murdered happen. Don't flatten out the Bible, okay? So how do you answer evil as a believer? How would you answer John, whose brother James is killed? When he says, God, why did you save Peter? But you didn't save my brother. How do you answer somebody like that? You have this miraculous rescue mission for Peter, but my brother gets his head cut off. God, why'd you do that? The real questions. We face them today. Southwest Airlines, flight 1380, where the engine blew up and the window gets broken, right? If you read the comments in the stories that people have of that, they're thanking Jesus, thanking God. Thank God I got saved. I didn't die. And then the comments are, praise God that he saved you. I say, oh, that's awesome. What about the lady that wasn't saved? What do you say to her mom? What do you say to her husband? What do you say to her kids? God didn't love you? What do you say? Did God love James more than Peter? Did James have some kind of secret sin that God's like, nope, not gonna save you? Why? These are real hard questions. And the thing with the Bible is this, I don't call it a problem, but it's a, it's, it's a hardship in a way, but I think it's really good. There's no frequently asked question sections in the Bible. Like, I'm just gonna know the frequency, like, why is evil do Like, there's no section like that in the Bible because the Bible is expecting you and I over a lifetime to soak and to read and to start to see, oh, that's the deal with evil, okay? So I'm gonna try to give you Genesis to Revelation, Genesis 3 to Revelation, actually Genesis 1 to Revelation 19. I'm gonna try to give you that view of what I think if you soak in scripture, here's what you're actually seeing. So I'll use an analogy. Um, let's imagine that you have a dad who is a five-star general. He's in charge of all the armed forces of America. He's the number one dude, okay? So you have this dad, you're, that's awesome. And you decide that this summer you're going to take your family on a vacation, but you know, everything now is a competition because you got to Instagram, you got to one-up each other. Even vacations are one-upping. So you're like, you know, Hawaii is for pansies. I'm going to North Korea, right? So you book a flight for you and your family and your wife and you head out to North Korea and you rent a little beach cabin in North Korea and you're Instagramming it, yeah, North Korea, take that. You Hawaiian people, yeah, right? So you're thinking you're cool. Well. The radio one night says war has broke out between North Korea and America. You're like, oh no. In the morning you're woke up and you're literally being shelled. 
And you look out the front door and there's the entire US Navy out there just right on the ocean and they're shelling in. You go out your back door, there's the entire North Korea army and they're shelling Americans and you're in this little cottage on a beach in the middle. What do you do? Cry, that'd be good. How about you get on your cell phone and you call your dad? Because he's a five-star general. He's in charge of the, that's, that's my dad out there with his army. You're like, dad, listen, I know you're in there. You've got to see that little cottage on the beach. I'm in it. The kids are in here. My wife's in here. Help me, right? We just took a hit. Junior's hurt. Help me. Here's what you got to know. Five-star general dad loves his son. Loves his grandkids in there loves his daughter-in-law. However, the five-star general dad has information that little family does not have. They can't see out through the little windows. He's got satellite images. He's got drones flying over. He's got not just the, the cottage in mind, he's got the entire safety of the world in mind. And the dad can't tell all this to the son because maybe they're listening on the cell phone. So what does the son have to do in that situation? He has to know, dad heard me, dad loves me. Dad's gonna do the best, not just for me, but for the entire world. And so in the end, what does that family have to do? Trust dad. All right, dad, you got the information, you've got all this stuff, you, you know it all, so we are now just going to trust you. All right? See, the truth is, God launched a rescue mission for you and I in the cottage <laughs> 2,000 years ago in Calvary. He launched it. And there still is really real evil in this world. Tons of it. There's moral evil. Like the murder of James is moral evil. And I'll say this, it was not God's will for James to be killed. How can you say that? Exodus 20, 13, thou shalt not murder right? Not God's will. The 10 commandments, you break the 10 commandments, you have just broken God's will. God's will is for you and I not to kill people. So I know the killing of James was not God's will. In fact, there are things that happen in this world that are not God's will. Read Jeremiah 32, 35. Actually, Jeremiah repeats it three times from God. God says this, the wickedness that had happened in Israel, he says this, I did not command it, nor did I even have it enter my mind that they would do this. It's God saying, that's not my will. That's not my will. Moral evil is not God's will. Number two, there's natural evil, like cancer. I'll say this, cancer is not God's will, period. It's not God's will that you get cancer. If you wanna know what God's will is, it's Genesis one and Genesis two, where God takes chaos, Genesis one, and creates order out of it, beauty. God's will is for you and me to live eternally in his presence. That's God's will. What happened is we fractured that in Genesis chapter three when we mutinied against the king of the universe. And when we did that, it actually broke everything. Just the cracks of that went through everything, including our DNA. And cancer is actually the opposite. It takes order and ordered DNA and creates chaos. It's actually the undoing of God's good creation, not God's will. And there's spiritual evil. And spiritual evil is not God's will. Jesus says that there's one who's come to steal, 
and to kill and to destroy. And what we'll see in the rest of the book of Acts is there is opposition to the good news. There is spiritual evil that comes against God's will. So the question then becomes, when it comes to evil, you and I are in this little cottage in the middle of this cosmic battle, what do we do? Satan tells you and me to do this. Shake your fist at God when evil happens, when cancer happens, when moral evil happens. Shake your fist at God. Get angry at him. Where were you? Why'd you say Peter, not James? Why'd you save that guy's mom, but not my mom? He wants us to shake our fist at God and get angry at God and say, where were you? And why didn't you? And what happened? That's what Satan wants to do. He wants you and me to do that. Here's what we're supposed to do. As you read the scripture, you're supposed to say, no, God's as angry at evil as I am. God's as angry at this stuff as I am. He's just as angry. And I join with him at, get ang- at getting angry at the right thing evil. I get angry at it. And then verse five, I get on my cell phone and I talk to my dad. God, help me. God, speak to me. God, save me. God, here's my circumstances. You pray earnestly to God. I think that is the right thing. Knowing the whole time he heard me, he loves me, and ultimately he's going to do the best for me and for this entire world because he has the satellite images and the drone images and he has all the information. And so I trust him. And that's based on Romans 8, 32. That if God gave his son for us, how shall he not with him give us all good things? We sit there and we pray. Okay, so that to me is evil. And that is a theme in the Bible from Genesis chapter one all the way through. Genesis one, really? Yeah, because Adam and Eve are created and they're told to subdue the earth. And that word subdue, it's a military term. There's an evil here, your job is to subdue it. Okay, number two, justice. Skip forward now to verse 20. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. He's always causing problems. He's just kind of an instigator, instigate, instigate. He's an instigator. That's a new word. And it doesn't mean anything. Instigator. No, oh my goodness. Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon and they came to him with one accord and having persuaded Blastus, that's a great name for a young man. The king's chamberlain, he's the guy that holds the calendar. For the king, he's like, I'll set up appointments. They asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On the appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took a seat upon the throne and delivered it in oration to them. And the people were shouting the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. How about that for an obituary? Cause of death? Worms. Again, I want you to work for a second. Put yourself in John's place. What's John thinking right now? Herod has just been killed. What would John think? God, why'd you wait? Why'd you wait till chapter 12? Why didn't you kill him in chapter 11? 
bankrupt him. Chapter 11, bankruptcy. Why don't you do that? No, that's not funny at all, is it? Note to self. No one laughs. Need, need a better one there. Thought it was good, but not so good. That's what John's gonna be thinking. Why? Read the prophets, read the Psalms. How many times does it say, God, why'd you wait? What took you so long? When Lazarus dies, what do both sisters say to Jesus? What took you so long? It's a constant, constant cry in the Bible. Why did you wait? So listen, God is against evil. He is against evil that's done to a perpetrator or done to a victim. And he's also, and here's the part that we miss, he's against the evil that's corroding and destroying the perpetrator as well. That God is for both. That God is for Herod. And God is trying to get Herod to change from his evil ways and become good, right? So he gives Herod 10 years. Come on, Herod, come on, Herod. The Bible calls it God's long suffering. God is willing to suffer long and to put up with a bunch of stuff because he says, I want Herod too. Second Peter chapter three, verse eight says that God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. So yes, he cares about the evil that happened to the victim, but he's also saying, I care about Herod. It's why I believe God gives nine chances to Pharaoh. Nine opportunities, Pharaoh, nine, one, two. Come on, let him go, let him go, let him go. And finally, there comes a point in a Herod's life or in a Pharaoh's life where God says, okay, okay, justice. And then you have events like this right here, justice. So God, you've got to know this, is against evil. Both the evil that's done to me and the evil that is ruining the perpetrator, okay? So listen to me very carefully. The only way that you and I will ever live as a kind of countercultural people is to thoroughly understand God's justice. And I'm trying to explain it to you um, with an analogy and with some Nietzsche. If you can't understand Nietzsche, I'll try to explain it with an analogy. So here's what Nietzsche said. He said, without God, if there's no God, then moral outrage. Why did Herod do that? Moral outrage is only a power play. That it's the way that weaker people try to control strong people. Because if you're really strong, you don't do moral outrage. You just go get vengeance, okay? So if that doesn't make sense, now let me give you the analogy. So my house for the last four years has run seven kids. It's like a refugee camp. We've run from zero babies all the way up to 17 year olds. And when it's raining, here's what will happen in my house. They will grab a soccer ball, clear out our living room, and they'll start playing soccer in there, okay? So let's say the little kids are in the living room and they're playing soccer and a big kid comes through, a big person comes through, steals the ball from them. What do the little kids do? Moral outrage, that's not fair, they took the ball from me, right? Moral outrage, why? Because they're not strong. Okay, let's reverse that. Strong people are pit, big kids are playing soccer, strong ones, they're playing soccer. A little guy comes through, grabs the soccer ball and runs out. What do the big kids do? Is it moral outrage? That's not fair. No, what do they do? 
It's UFC 2018, Walker Road, right? Pound them because they can. Okay, now you understand Nietzsche. You got a PhD. Right? That's what Nietzsche is saying. Strong versus weak, okay? Without God. So let's add in one more ingredient. So little kids playing soccer. Big person comes through, steals the ball. What other option do they have? Tell mom, that was it. Go to a higher authority. You go and you tell mom, right? Mom, they took our ball. Please tell dad to give it back to us. I'm the worst perpetrator. You go to a higher authority. To me, that's the biblical story. That our job is not to go get vengeance and not to try to make things like, oh, I'm gonna go get that person. No, our job, the only way we can do our job well is to believe in a God who can bring justice. A God who can do verses 20 through 23. And he does it in his own time and in his own way. And what we do is we plead to him saying, and you see it in the Psalms, it's, pro, it's called protest theology. We tell him about the way we think, but then we trust him to do it in the right time. I trust you, God. I trust you. The only way we'll ever live, Matthew 5, 43, love your enemies, pray for those that persecute you, do good to those that despitefully use you. The only way we can ever do that is to believe there's a God of justice. That's why Paul, when he says this in Romans chapter 12, he says, vengeance is mine, I'll repay. Who does vengeance belong to? God says, I own this. We wanna help God so often, but we don't. Vengeance is mine, I'll repay. And so it says then for you and I, don't be overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. That our weapon is not, I'm gonna get back at that guy. I'm gonna, uh, our weapon is, no, I'm gonna be good to them. This is the most freeing thing. If you get God's justice, you'll be set free from so many things that waste unbelievable amounts of time the, the little record in your mind where you're driving down the road and you start thinking about, I'm gonna say this to them and I'm gonna go get them and oh, all that stuff that just ruins your body, you get set free from that. Now I'll just talk to God about it and I'll trust he and his right time will bring vengeance on this situation and he'll bring justice on this. You get set free from all that wasted energy if you truly understand God's justice. And you see God's justice going from Pharaoh all the way to Revelation 20. I'll bring justice in my time. You talk to me and trust me. That's what it says over and over and over again. Do you believe in a God who brings justice? If you do not, you will not be able to forgive people. If you do not, you'll be consumed with bitterness. If you do not, you'll go down this cascading thing of the thing that happens to all of us where we get a little lawyer geared up in our mind and it just cycles us into depression and uh, actually pollutes our body with bad chemicals. God will bring justice. That is the big story of the Bible. He does it right here. Gives Herod plenty of time to repent. When he doesn't, justice. Finally, lastly, quickly, Hope. Look how Luke, saw this. He, 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 the period on it is verse 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. I agree 100% with Martin Luther King, who after the Birmingham bombing, he said this, I believe in a God, believe in a God 
who can wring good from evil. I believe in a God who can wring good from evil. You have this evil act that takes place, but out of it comes an increase in the kingdom of God, a decrease in the kingdom of this world and an increase in the kingdom of God. And I think, and I'm, I'm stepping out here and I'll tell you that, I'm on thin ground a little bit, but maybe we're getting a clue about the ultimate hope in this word, word. So the Greek is the original language of Acts. The Greek for word there is logos. Logos is a term that is often used to refer to Jesus in the gospel of John. The gospel, the logos increases and multiplied. You've got King Herod, who's a bad dude, who's evil, who's wicked, who's causing chaos and destruction, right? He is dealt with, and then out of it, the logos increases and multiplies. See, our, our hope, our hope is this. Our hope is in Jesus, that a rescue mission was launched 2000 years ago, and that rescue mission will be completed. That the Herods that are in our world, and they're still Herods, they use their power to hurt people. The Herods of this world will be dealt with. The exile, the tyrants will be dealt with by King Jesus. And so this whole story is wrapped around an event called Passover. Passover is when Jews remembered their freedom from a tyrant named Pharaoh, freedom from slavery, their freedom from exile from where they were at. Now they were being brought home to the promised land. It was all that. And Jesus on Passover, what did he do? Communion. He brought in communion. What Jesus was saying by communion at Passover was this. All those stories about tyrants and exile and coming home, they were all appetizers, but they actually speak about me. I'm the main course. I'm making this happen. I'll get rid of the tyrants. I'll bring you home. You ever feel homesick? Like even though you're at home and even though things seem good, there's still like this part of you that's homesick. I thought about doing a, a series of messages on homesick. Like there's, some, there's an angst in us. No matter how good it is, there's still like this homesickness. You know why? Because we were created for Eden to live in God's presence eternally. And until we're there, there's homesickness. So you've got Jesus saying, all those stories in the Old Testament, I fulfill them. They're about me. And if you know communion and you know Passover, Jesus there, he does three cups. But in Passover, there's actually a fourth cup. It's why Jesus ends communion by saying, I won't drink of this cup until the new kingdom. He's saying, I'm gonna come and there's a little space in between when you're a cottage on the beach, but in between this, know this, I'm coming back and we'll drink the fourth cup together. We'll celebrate the brand new kingdom. So when you and I drink and eat communion, here's what we're actually doing. We're reliving that story. We're participating in it in two ways. The Bible says this, communion is about two things. Jesus' death and Jesus' return. It's both those things. So when I take communion, here's what I know. Jesus' death set me free. Whatever tyrant there might be in my life, whatever thing has enslaved me, I say, Jesus, you set me free from that. I no longer have to succumb to that. I don't have to be that way anymore. Because the lie of the enemy is this, 
that's always in our minds. You'll never change. You're always broken. No one will love you. God doesn't hear you. Where is God at? You've got all those lies all the time. And what you say when you partake in communion is, no, I'm not listening to that anymore. Jesus, my King, has rescued me. And evil was dealt as death blow on the cross. And right now it's in death rows. That's all it is. And all it can do is lie and deceive me. Instead, what you do is you drink life. Jesus, you're returning for me. The kingdom will come. It will increase and it will be multiplied. I can be changed today. I don't have to be what I was. I don't have to believe the lies of the enemy that says, you'll never change. You'll always be under my control. You'll always be this way. No, you eat and you drink life. I think every day we are faced with a choice. Am I gonna believe the lies? That will curse me. Or I believe this big story of the Bible that will cure me, that the King has come. He's launched a rescue mission. And now I get to participate in that and drinking and eating of him. And I'm gonna be different today. I'm gonna be changed. I'm not gonna get vengeance. I'm gonna start th thinking that way. I'm gonna trust his justice, knowing there is real evil, but God hears me and he loves me. And one day I'll be saved from this place and I'll be home. That's the big message of the Bible. So Father, we pray that your kingdom would increase and multiply in Grant's Pass. I pray for any that have come into this place sensing evil, feeling like they're underneath the thumb of a Herod, of a tyrant, of a Pharaoh. I pray that we would be a people that earnestly pray to you, trusting your justice. I pray for those in here who've been tempted to shake their fists at you, saying, where are you at? What took you so long? Getting angry at you. I pray that we, as your people, would learn to direct our anger in the right spot, which is towards evil. I pray as we come to the table today and we eat and we drink, I pray that we would know that your kingdom will increase and multiply and that our king will return for us and renew us and we'll become fully human and we'll finally be home. Set the way things are supposed to be and that today we can actively participate in that kingdom by eating and drinking, by being a group of people that don't hate our enemies, but being a group of people that overcome evil with good. That's how we participate. That's how we see it increase. So empower us, Lord, engage us. And may we go from here knowing there's a real war and there are casualties, but we have a great general who has all the information. He's gonna return and we win. May we take hope in that. And I ask this in your name, amen.